Well, let me invite you now to open your Bibles with me to Second Peter chapter one, and we'll be looking at verses uh, sixteen through eight. And in the uh, previous uh, passage that we looked at last week, Peter had expressed his resolve of his life that until his departure, until he dies and leaves this world, he was committed to reminding them of these great truths that they have been taught. So picking it up from there, starting in verse 16, the Apostle Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes these words for God's glory and for our edification. He writes, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when He received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to Him by the majestic glory. This is My beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with Him on the holy mountain. And may God bless the reading of His Word. Okay, so in verses 12-15 through again, Peter says, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them, you've already been established in them. And obviously last week we had to decide and work through, what does he mean by these things? What, Peter, are you ready to remind them of? And just again, by way of review, we have seen, starting in verse 3, that Peter had told them of God's power that has given the saints everything they need for life and godliness. That's verse 3 and 4. And because of God's grace to you as believers, because of His power giving you everything you need for life and godliness, that should then motivate us all to seek after those seven virtues in verses 5 through 7. Do you remember what they are? been meditating on them, moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, Christian kindness, and love. Peter says we need to pursue these in our life, in our relationships, in our day-to-day following after Jesus Christ. And we can do that because God in His grace and power has given us the Spirit of God and new life that enables us to pursue verses 8 through 11. So these virtues are going to help make you a fruitful Christian. When you of heaven, you do it with joy and you do it with the blessing of God. But notice at the end of verse 11, he references entrance into the eternal kingdom. Now that's an important thought for the Apostle Peter. Because the false teachers that he will deal with later on in this epistle have rejected the future coming of Jesus Christ. 
that Peter has in mind. This eternal kingdom that will come when, when Jesus Christ comes. The false teachers, you see, did not believe in the second coming. They thought it was you know, just a fable or a myth. There is no future second coming. And because of that, they were teaching some of the that because there's no future judgment day, there's no second coming, therefore, the motivation to live a godly life, according to Peter, is nullified. No, you don't have to do it. Follow us. Because we feel like there is grace with God. And so we're enjoying life. We're living according to the flesh. We're engaging in sensuality. Because there is no second coming. There is no coming judgment. And this is what Peter will actually deal with later on in chapter 3. When he says in verse 3, Know this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their lust, saying, where is the promise of His coming? Ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning. Where is the promise of His coming? I mean, we look around, nothing seems to have changed. We don't see any divine intervention. So all this stuff about a future divine intervention, a great judgment, the second coming, where is it? We don't see it. We don't see any evidence of it. So Peter's kind of rigid and strict. We believe in a looser kind of a Christianity where you can live in sin and enjoy it and enjoy the knowing that one day you'll go to heaven. That's a false gospel. So what Peter is doing in 16 through 18 is he's doing somewhat of a preemptive strike against the false teachers who are denying the second coming. And what Peter wants to do early on, even in chapter 1, is to give his readers a, a confidence in the coming glory of Jesus Christ when He comes a second time. The first one we'll look at in the passage this morning. The second one, Lord willing, we'll look at in a couple of weeks. But Peter will make two points about the truth of Christ's second coming. He says the first one is you can be confident that it's going to happen because we are eyewitnesses of His glory. Now we'll get in and see what he means by that in just a moment. But that's going to be point number one. That's in verses 16 through 18. And then in verses 19 through 21, he's going to say, the second coming is going to happen. You can be confident because we have the prophetic Word of God that we stand on. So that will be point number two. But let's begin by looking at this. Uh, Peter begins by saying in verse 16, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what Peter is referring to here by the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, first off, is the two words power and coming in the Greek are kind of united together. They're they're basically referencing the same event. So you could say the coming and power of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the power and the coming are joined together. Now what coming does he have in mind? Well, the Greek word that Peter uses is parousia, or parousia, some people pronounce it. 
And that particular word in the New Testament has become a technical term for the second coming, not the first coming of Jesus Christ. So what Peter has in mind is we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the powerful coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Referring to the... It's also used in secular Greek whenever a ruler or even in their mythology a, a god might appear among men, they would use this particular word. So here it's used in the New Testament specifically for the coming of Jesus Christ. Peter will use the same word again for the second coming in chapter 3. Where is the promise of His coming? That's parousia. And then in verse 12, looking for and hastening the coming parousia of the day of God because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. That's clearly the second coming of Jesus Christ. So he uses it several more times in chapter 3 to refer to Christ's second coming. So that's dominantly in his thinking. Now, when we think of this, of his coming in power at his second coming, certainly in the first coming of our Lord, he came with power in a certain sense. We see that in the miracles. We see it in many expressions of His divine nature. But Christ in His first coming came to be primarily a man of sorrows. He came to suffer. He came to die on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. But at His second coming, it will uniquely be a coming in power. Because He will come and rule over His enemies with a rod of iron. He will come in power and judgment against those who have rebelled against Him. So uniquely, Peter has the second coming in mind. Now look at what Peter says in verse 16. We did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the second coming. Is basically what he's saying. In other words, we didn't invent this like the false teachers are claiming that we did. This is not a cleverly invented story or a myth or a fable. The false teachers were claiming that this second coming that the apostles were preaching was just a false story with no historical basis. Interestingly enough, liberals today follow the same logic that the false teachers were even back then by denying a coming second coming, denying a day of judgment, They don't want to believe in it. They want to believe in a God that's going to hold them accountable for their sin. So they deny it. Liberals do that today just like the false teachers were doing it back then. But rather what Peter says is that when we taught you about the second coming of Christ, this is anything but mythical. It's actually rooted in history. It's It's rooted in the fact that we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. So the second coming is going to happen because we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. We saw it with our own eyes. So in other words, the false teacher said the second coming was based on fiction. The apostles said it was based on fact. But the interesting thing is, obviously the second coming hasn't happened yet. 
So how can he say he was eyewitnesses of it? Well, what Peter then does is makes reference to the transfiguration of Jesus Christ. And to connect the dots, he is convinced that something wonderful happened at the transfiguration that gave him the confidence that the second coming, the future second coming, was absolutely going to take place. And we'll connect those dots as we work through the passage this morning. But he says, we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. And the majesty word here that's used refers to the great power and splendor of Jesus Christ. It's certainly a reference to His deity. But there's a connection here. So let's move on to verse 17 and 18. See if we can kind of figure this out. So now in verse 17, the eyewitness that they were was of Christ's glory manifested at the transfiguration. So we read in verse 17, For when He received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to Him by the majestic glory, this is My beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. So this is clearly Peter has the transfiguration in mind. And then he says in verse 18, And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with Him on the holy mountain. So we're talking about the Mount of Transfiguration where Christ was transfigured before them. Now obviously, we see in the transfiguration a truth about the divine nature of Jesus Christ. So let me begin by just referencing where the transfiguration took place. Now a lot of people believe it took place on Mount Tabor where it took place. So somewhere up there northeast of the Sea of Galilee was where the actual transfiguration took place. We do not know where it was. We don't know the mountain. But that's where it was located. Somewhere up there. We're told in Matthew's Gospel of the Transfiguration, starting in verse 1, it says, Six days later, Jesus took with Him Peter, James, and John, His brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. So all the disciples didn't get to see the Transfiguration. Only the inner circle, only the three, Peter, James, and John, were the only ones who witnessed it. Verse 2, and He was transfigured before them. And His face shone like the sun, and His garments became white as light. Now Mark, in his version, will say that His garments became radiant and exceedingly white as no launderer on earth can whiten them. So ladies, you know, as you do wash, you know, you got those dirty clothes and sometimes the stains don't come out. Well, Christ's garments were so white that no tide or whatever you use could, could make it that white. And so it's just an incredible transformation before their eyes. And then as uh, Matthew goes on to say in verse 5, while he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, this would be the Shekinah glory of God overshadowed them. 
And behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to Him. That's what Peter is quoting. Peter was there. He saw it. He's quoting the words of the Father spoken from heaven when they're on the Mount of Transfiguration. When the disciples heard this, they fell down to the ground and they were terrified. We would have been too had we saw this. Okay, so let's... So the transfiguration. Now, why did Jesus go up on the mountain with His three disciples? Well, let's do a little bit of the backstory because I think this is going to help us to understand how the transfiguration is connected with the second coming. So let's back up. And we're told there that some eight days after these sayings, He took along Peter and John and James and went up to the mountain to pray. So now we know why Jesus took those three disciples and went up the mountain. He wanted to go up there and pray. And what did He want? What was He praying about? Well, if you go back in Luke's Gospel, about six verses, you come backwards to verse 22. And Jesus had been teaching His disciples and talking about the cross. He was saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised up on the third day. So He had been talking with His disciples about His own crucifixion. He had been meditating upon the cross. And so going up on the mountain was probably one of the preliminary struggles of our Lord. Just like will happen later in the Garden of Gethsemane. He'll take the same three disciples, Peter, James, and John, in the Garden of Gethsemane, and He'll go over and experience the agony in His human nature of anticipating the pain, the suffering of the cross of Christ. Well, this is an earlier event. And He had been telling His disciples about the cross, about His death, about His suffering. And I think He goes up on the mountain to pray. It won't be as intense. The agony won't be as severe as later in the Garden of Gethsemane. But I think that's on His mind. And Luke will actually confirm that for us if you look at verse 30. Because we know that behold, two men were talking with Him during the transfiguration. And they were Moses and Elijah who were speaking of His departure which He was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now again, that word departure is is the word for exodus. The very same word that Peter used for his death. So the Lord is talking with Moses and Elijah about His exodus. Moses had accomplished a physical exodus for the people of God. Christ will accomplish a spiritual exodus for the people of God. He'll bring them out of a land of slavery, out from under the tyranny of Satan, and lead them into the promised land. So they're talking about His death, His suffering on the cross. Jesus talking with Moses and Elijah about the the exodus He was about to perform, Him being the Passover Lamb who would die for the sins of His people to accomplish this great deliverance. So this is in the back of the mind of our Lord. This is what's taking place. This was a theme of the transfiguration. In part, 
was our Lord was dealing and preparing Himself mentally and physically in His human nature to, to go to the cross and die and suffer for our sins. Again, this will be ramped up big time in the Garden of Gethsemane. Because then the agony will be so intense that He will utterance as this was made to Him by the majestic glory saying, this is My beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. I think what Peter is saying is that the transfiguration of our Lord anticipates the second coming of Jesus Christ. In other words, when Jesus is on the Mount of Transfiguration and He is, he is going through some mental agony, thinking about the cross, talking to Moses and Elijah about His own exodus, His own death as the Passover Lamb, I think inwardly His human nature, just like in the Garden of Gethsemane, is wrestling with, with just the, the, severe, the severity of the price that He's about to make. In response to that, the Father answers the Son's prayer because He went up to pray and transfigured Him into glory. And I think the answer of the Father to the Son's prayer, anticipating, preparing Himself for the agony of the cross, is yes, you will go to the cross, but there is glory that lies beyond. And the Father enabled Christ to receive this immersion in glory so His face shone, shone like the sun. His, his garments were made extremely white because that is a foreshadowing of the glory This is human nature. And I think this was a preliminary, a prelude to the glory of the second coming. And I think Peter understood that. Because another interesting part of the conversation that Jesus had with His disciples before the transfiguration is found in Mark 9, verse 1. When it says that Jesus was saying to them, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And many commentators think that what Jesus is referring to is a transfiguration you're going to see the kingdom of God come with power. Some of you here will see it. Peter, James, and John got to see it. And this transfiguration, a prelude of what we will see in a far greater magnitude when Jesus Christ comes at the second coming. And in their minds, they see the transfiguration as proof positive that the second coming will take place. And that's why Peter says, hey, we weren't following some fairy tales when we made known to you the second coming of Jesus Christ. No, we saw it with our eyes. We saw the preview of the glory of Christ at the second coming on the Mount of Transfiguration. The glory we saw is the same glory He will bring when He comes again. So we were eyewitnesses of it. The second coming is not based upon fables. We saw the preview of it. So it's confident that it will take place. And I think that's the argument that he's making. And that's why he's trying to assure these believers, don't believe these false teachers who are running around as a historical fact. We were there. We saw it. 
And this is merely again just a foreshadowing and anticipation of the second coming. So he links the two events together. And that's why he says, the power and coming of Jesus Christ is not a myth. We're eyewitnesses of His glory. Referring to the transfiguration. Because it's merely just a kind of cracking of the envelope to see the glory of Christ which will be fully manifested when He comes again. So the historical event of the transfiguration of Christ in Peter's mind, when he saw the glory of Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration, anticipated and made certain the future historical event of the coming of the glory of Christ at the second advent. They merely just saw a preview of His coming. But he's convinced it was a preview. This is just a momentary attraction of what will be happening on a grand scale when Jesus comes back. Now the fact that Jesus is going to come back physically, which liberals today deny, the false teachers of Peter's day deny also, is, uh, is totally refuted by what the angel told the disciples when Jesus ascended into heaven in Acts chapter 1, verse 11. The angels told them, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who's been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched Him go into heaven. In other words, there will be a physical coming. Just as they literally, visually rising up into heaven, so will be His second coming. You can't spiritualize it. It's going to be a physical return, a visible re- return, a literal return, and it will be a return in glory taste. A glimpse of the glory of the second coming when we saw the transfiguration. Because it's going to happen. He's going to come back in glory. And so they're absolutely confident of that event. Transfiguration, glory, the transfiguration of our Lord. And then to add to that, Peter the Son, when he says, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. So now the Father is speaking from heaven at the transfiguration, saying that all that my Son is going to accomplish on the cross, and even before that, He's my beloved Son. I am totally well pleased with Him. And He gives honor and glory to the Son. Glory that He received is probably the transfiguration glory. The face shining as bright as the sun. When you think about that imagery... I mean, how could they have even looked at the face of Christ if it's shining like the sun and yet His clothes were transformed? It was an incredible sight that they saw. So that's the, the glory that He received from the Father. But the honor is the verbal expression of those words, this is My beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. What God is doing here is weaving together certain phrases from the Old Testament. Applying them to His Son. This is my beloved Son. He gives, he gives Jesus honor by saying, this is my beloved Son. A reference to Psalm 2. Where it says, you are my Son, today I have begotten you. Jesus is my Son. So there's a link to Psalm 2 in the first part of what the Father said from heaven. 
And then he said, with whom I'm well pleased. That's a reference to Isaiah 42. For God prophesies, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I'm well pleased in my servant, my son. So he weaves together these two verses to express his utter joy in his son. And this was not only to encourage Jesus' human nature in going to the cross, but also to encourage the disciples who oversaw this, who overheard this. It would have had a tremendous impact upon them as well. You know, it's interesting when, when the Father says, with whom I'm well pleased, there is no one that God is pleased with but His Son. Because to please the Father, you must be sinless. You must be perfect. And no one was sinless but the Son. And that's why He could die so that any sinner who turns from their sin and puts their faith completely in Christ will receive the free gift of everlasting life. And I hope and pray that every one of you this morning have done that. That you have come to Jesus Christ alone who can save you from your sins. He offers you a free gift. He commands you to come. And no one else can save you, but Jesus Christ can save you. Come to Him and you will be saved. Only Jesus could say, I always do the things that are pleasing to Him in John 8.29. Or in John 6.38, He says, For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. He was completely sold out and committed to do the will of His Father. That's why the Father could say, with whom I am well pleased. This is my Son. My sinless, obedient, perfect Son who came down to be the Lamb of God, the Passover Lamb, to save His people from their sin. Quite an amazing statement. And Peter, James, and John heard the Father speak from heaven those words. You know, there's three times in the Gospels where God the Father speaks from heaven. The first one was at our Lord's baptism. The second time was here at His transfiguration. And the third time will be in John chapter 12 when the Greeks come to Jesus and they say, we want to see Jesus. And the Father speaks from heaven for the third time. Just delighting in His Son. Delighting in His sinlessness. Delighting in His sacrilegious nature. Nevertheless, when we come to faith in Christ, are imputed with that righteousness of Christ so that now in Christ we are pleasing to the Father. Not because of anything within us, but because of what Jesus has done for us. And then in verse 18, Peter says, and we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with Him on the holy mountain. So that Basically, at the transfiguration, what Jesus is saying, what He's experiencing, is the Father's endorsement and approval of Him going to the cross, laying down His life as a Passover lamb, shedding His blood so that He could perform a great deliverance and exodus for His people out of sin and misery and death. 
And yet he's also saying by glorifying the Son, giving Him this experience of transfiguration, that this is a foretaste, a foreshadowing of what you will bring in your second coming. And I think again, Peter connects the dots. He sees the transfiguration for more, far more than just a display of Christ's divine nature. It's far more than that. It's a preview, a pledge, a foretaste of the glory of the second coming. And that's why he can make this argument. Now look, when I told you about the power and coming of Christ, it's not a fable. We were eyewitnesses of it. It's a historical fact. Obviously, the second coming hasn't happened yet, but we saw the transfiguration. And that was a preview of the glory of the second coming. So it's going to happen. God gave us a confirmation that His glory, His second coming will occur because we saw the preview of it at the transfiguration. That's the logic that Peter's making here. Only a few saw it. Only some of His disciples, Peter, James, and John, were the only ones But they saw it. They were eyewitnesses of it. Any inroads of the false teachers among them that were denying the second coming, that were calling it cleverly designed fables, was totally false and totally false doctrine. Peter has actually had a glimpse of the future glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. And he brings his own eyewitness account as proof positive that the second coming is coming. I, th- I saw a t-shirt recently, I think it was online, it said, normalcy is not coming back, but Jesus is. And I think that's a truth for all of us that we need to, to lay hold of when we think about why is Peter emphasizing the second coming so much? Well, because there's a lot of bad things happening in Peter's day. There's a lot of bad things happening today. And when Christ comes back, you'll have the great separation of the sheep and the goats. The sheep, believers, no pain. All tears will be taken away for those who know the Lord Jesus Christ. For unbelievers who turn away from Christ, never bow the knee to Christ, never receive Him as their Lord and Savior, they will stand before the coming King as well and give an account for every thought and word and deed and even every motive of their heart. They will be condemned and they will be cast into the lake of fire. The opportunity to repent is now. It's not a message to delay, to put off till tomorrow. We are sinners and Christ is coming back. And when Christ comes back, there will be no further opportunity for repentance and faith, for forgiveness of sin or the hope of eternal life. It will all be over. And today is the day of salvation. The blessing that Peter is emphasizing by bringing it up early and then dealing with it more in chapter 3 is that the second coming for believers is, is an, just an incredible event. It's, a, it's an event we should glory in, that we should rejoice in, that we should look forward to. Especially in times that are difficult and discouraging. 
Again, the great blessing of the second coming and keeping that in the forefront of our minds is that it helps to lift your spirit and your heart when the world seems to be going crazy in a dead-end sprint towards destruction. People can look at the news. I look at it. There's so many things to be discouraged about, disheartened about. What's happening in our world today can be, it can fill us with despair. I mean, just all the corruption that's going on, the way our culture and society is just totally caved in to the LGBTQ+, the trans craziness, what they're teaching in public schools today to young little kids about, you know, you may not be a boy, you might be a girl instead. All the craziness that we look around that's going on, and as a believer in Jesus Christ, we look at the Scripture and our heart just groans and moans and we just we don't know what in the world is going on in our world today. It's insane. But Christ is coming back. And in that day, every evil, every injustice, every crime will be fully punished. And there will be no injustice. There will be no lie that will be able to distort the truth Everything will be made right when Christ comes back. That's a huge encouragement to us. So right now as believers, we need to be the light of the world and the salt of the earth. We need to preach the Gospel. That's the only thing that can change hearts. We need to be the light and the salt in the sense that we still not only preach the Gospel, but, but, but we affirm and stand for biblical values and pray for God's mercy. Pray for our rulers. Pray for our country. Pray for the world. Pray for all the the stuff that's happening in other nations. The wars and all the crimes and the death and the persecution. But in all of that, we need to step back and realize that, that God has a predestined plan that's taking place. I may not understand it. There's certainly a lot of sin, things that grieves us. But ultimately, regardless of the chaos, regardless of the wrong that's happening in the world today, Christ will come back and every injustice will be corrected. Every lie will be exposed. And that's a day of glory. That's something that we can be encouraged by and look forward to. Our hope is not in man. It's not in this world. It's not in our strength to be able to bring in the kingdom of God. Because we can't do that. We do what we can and being a godly witness, but we cannot bring in the kingdom of God. It will come in power when Christ comes in glory. That's when the kingdom will come in its fullness. And so now I think the church should understand that when Christ comes back, everything will be made right. Every evil and sin will be punished. And we need to continually refresh the screen of our mind with the truth of the second coming. We need to revive it. It's a great blessing to us. It's a great encouragement to us. But we so oftentimes forget that. So when we look around, we see how bad everything is. We just we sink in gloom. We sink in despair. We get discouraged. We shouldn't be. Because we win in the end, as we all know. And when Christ comes back again, Everything's going to be made right. Even if we're not successful in making much inroads, Christ will make it all right. So the second coming 
is a truth that Peter wants to remind his readers. It's a truth that we need to be reminded of often too because we forget it so quickly. We don't live in light of it so often. And John, the Apostle, who saw that transfiguration along with Peter, said this, Beloved, we are the children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. But we know that when He appears, we will be like Him because we will see Him just as He is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself just as He is pure. So what John is saying Keep the coming of Christ in the foreview of your thinking and in your mind. Because when He appears, we will be transformed to be like Him. We will see Him as He is. And everyone who has that hope purifies himself. It has a sanctifying power to protect us against sin, to stand up for Christ and the Gospel now if we have that second coming firmly before us in the future. So I think that's what Peter is encouraging us to do. Is to remember that, yeah, there are mockers and scoffers. Second coming, future judgment, nah, not going to happen. But Peter says, listen, it is a a sure fact. It will take place. I've seen the preview of it. Christ is coming again in glory. And we need to be ready. We need to be watching. We need to be waiting. We need to be living today in light of that great future event. And if we do that, then it will motivate us to seek after those virtues, to purify ourselves, to live more for Christ, and to live for His honor and His glory. So that's how Peter connects the transfiguration with the second coming. He's confident of the second coming because he's seen the glory of it when Christ was transfigured on the mount. And he's confident that that was merely an anticipation, a prelude, a preview of the glory to come when Christ comes a second time. And we should believe His testimony and rejoice in the Lord's coming. So may God help us to do that. Well, let's close in a word of prayer. Our Father, we do thank You, Lord, for Peter's focus on the second coming because so oftentimes, Lord, it, it does seem to disappear from our, the horizon of our own thinking and our thoughts. We do have a tendency, Lord, to get pulled down in all the things that are wrong with today's world. And it is discouraging. It is depressing. And we try what we can in our little part to make a difference and to stand for biblical values and share the Gospel when we can, but it looks like the world is just bent on running into hell. And Lord, these things are certainly discouraging to us. But when we lift our eyes up and understand that You have a sovereign plan that's being worked out, that ultimately Christ will come back and everything that's wrong today will be justly dealt with. That we can find great hope and peace and joy and confidence in living for Christ today. All because of our confidence that Christ is coming again. And history will end and Christ will usher in the glory of the heavenly state forever and ever. And that should be a great joy 
and a great purifying stimulant into our heart and lives today. So Lord, make this truth fresh again within our hearts and minds and help us to live in light of it more, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.